And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set down, his disciples came unto him. And opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lose its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing any more but to be cast out and to be trodden on by men. Hey, hey there, welcome back to Catholic with a Zen Mind. That's right, we're uh, the only podcast out here that's taking Zen Buddhism uh, and, well, you know, just Buddhism, regular, regular old Buddhism, <laughs> and we're, uh, well, we're taking aspects of it and we're uh, analyzing it using Catholic teaching. Sometimes traditional, sometimes not so traditional, but we're taking Catholic teaching. We're taking a Christ-centered view, and we're going at Buddhism, going at Zen Buddhism, particularly. Why? Well, things like Lumen Gentium, Vatican II, Pope Francis, God wills the plurality and diversity of all religions. These, this kind of talk. So we're going to look at Zen. We're going to see just how compatible Zen really is with a Catholic point of view. I mean, by a Zen Buddhist definition, sure, they can achieve a form of complete detachment, enlightenment, and all that. But if it has nothing to do with Christ, is it really complete? 
Man, that's a question. I guess we all have to ask ourselves and answer ourselves. If you really want to know that answer, well, meditate on it. But I'd like to thank you guys for joining me here. We are going to go over today kind of the morality, the ethics <laughs> behind, well, Buddhism. And, uh, well, most of us already know the ethics of Catholicism. Many of you are jumping straight into, oh, yep, Ten Commandments, I know those, but no, oh, that's not where I'm headed today. That's not what we're doing today. Today, we're doing the Beatitudes. And what are we stacking against the Beatitudes? We're stacking the Eightfold Path. Now, uh, if you've listened to any of the older, newer, well, <laughs> uh, what a contradiction. Um, if you've listened to any of the um, older episodes about the pillars when we did suffering, uh, my cousin Rufus von Lichtenstein, a.k.a. Mike, he came on the show and we went over the Four Noble Truths. Now... The Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Noble Truths. So we'll be going over that today. Uh, but the other f three, okay, so the first one is you have the realization that everything is suffering. And that's not really that simple. <laughs> you can't really put it that simply. It's, it's uh, you know, waking up is suffering. Brushing your teeth every day is suffering. Having to drive to work every day is suffering. Having to work every day is suffering. You know, it's not everything is suffering, because that's a pretty general and heavy statement to make, but uh, going through as many actions as, as you have to go through um, because of certain attachments, that is suffering. And then that is the, uh, that is the second of the noble truths, uh, I guess you could say, is attachments, that you, you have these attachments to things, and that's what causes your uh, suffering, and this is called karma, your attachments, your grasping, uh, this is your karma, right, and we, we went over in another episode about the pillars, about how the Zen Catholic understands that this grasping and uh, this karma is actually a result of original sin because of the knowledge of good and evil that we have inherited from our fallen parents, very first parents, Adam and Eve. So we have this karma, this grasping, this attachment that's the second of the noble truths. And the third is nirvana, which is the escape from attachments. Now, it's, it's not as simple as a lot of people think it is, where it's dying and going to heaven. It's not quite that simple. It's a release from the cycle of birth and death, reaching nirvana. Um, and then the fourth, as I said, is the Eightfold Path. And which is that is what we're going over today, along with the Beatitudes and how they kind of stack up next to each other. So, 
Uh, before we get into that, I want to read a quote here out of Alan Watts's book uh, about the uh, Four Noble Truths. Uh, he said, um, this is actually a one of the Buddha's doctrine given in the, the Visud Jimaga. Suffering alone exists. None who suffer. The deed there is, but no doer thereof. Nirvana is, but no one seeking it. The path there is, but none who travel it. Well, we're about to travel it right now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, what is what what is the eightfold path, right? Um, that's kind of what we have to tackle here first. Is what is the eightfold path? Now, if you don't know what the eightfold path is, or if you've never even heard of it, this is the uh, this is kind of the code that you would live by to end your grasping to end your attachments to kind of, to bring that cycle of karma to a halt to achieve nirvana this is how you do it or this is how they say that you do it um, and it consists of these here eight things complete view complete understanding complete speech complete action complete vocation complete application complete recollectedness, complete contemplation. Now, inversely, we have the Beatitudes, which I read when we were, uh, when we opened the show. So, we have these to stack up next to each other. This is what we're doing today. So, I'll start here by reading out of page 51 of Alan Watts, uh, The Way of Zen. And we have the Four Noble Truths, as we've gone over, describes the Eightfold Path of the Buddha's Dharma. That is, the method, or doctrine, whereby self-frustration is brought to an end. Each section of the path has a name preceded by the word Samyak which has the meaning of perfect or complete. The first two sections have to do with thought. The following four have to do with action. And the final two have to do with contemplation or awareness. And so, again, we have complete view, complete understanding, complete speech, complete action complete vocation, complete application, complete recollectedness, complete contemplation, and on uh, the, th the third one, complete speech, you could say truthful speech, um, be a good trade-off. <clears throat> Without discussing these sections in detail, it may simply be said that the first two are concerned with a proper understanding of the doctrine and of the human situation. In some ways, the first section, complete view, contains all the others, since the method of Buddhism is above all the practice of clear awareness. 
of seeing the world just as it is. Such awareness is a lively attention to one's direct experience, to the world, as immediately sensed, so as not to be misled by names and labels. Samyak Samadhi, the last section of the path, is the perfection of the first, signifying pure experience, pure awareness, wherein there is no longer the dualism of the knower and the known. The sections dealing with action are often misunderstood because they have a deceptive similarity to a system of morals. Buddhism does not share the Western view that there is a moral law enjoined by God or by nature. Now, I want to pause here and say that this is, uh, this is one of the things that Catholics should be noting right now, that this is where things kind of break apart. Anyways, back to reading. Uh, God or by nature, which it is man's duty to obey. <clears throat> the Buddha's precepts of conduct, abstinence from taking life, taking what is not given, exploitation of the passions, lying and intoxication, are voluntarily assumed rules of expediency the intent of which is to remove the hindrances to clarity of awareness. Failure to observe the precepts produces bad karma, not because karma is a law or moral retribution, but because all motivated and purposeful actions, whether conventionally good or bad, are karma insofar as they are directed to the grasping of life. Generally speaking, the conventionally bad actions are rather more grasping than the good. But the higher stages of Buddhist practice are as much concerned with disentanglement from good karma as from bad. Thus, complete action is ultimately free, uncontrived, or spontaneous action in exactly the same sense as the Taoist Wu Wei. Smriti, recollectedness, and samadhi, contemplation, constitute the section dealing with the life of meditation, the inner mental practice of the Buddha's way. Complete recollectedness is a constant awareness or watching of one's sensations, feelings, and thoughts without purpose or comment. It is a total clarity and presence of mind, actively passive wherein events come and go, like reflections in a mirror. Nothing is reflected, except what is. <clears throat> so, right there, that is a pretty good explanation of the Buddhist thought behind the, uh, or at least the Zen Buddhist thought behind the Eightfold Path. Uh, you can kind of see how it it has the uh, trademark Zen quality of dropping the labels. <laughs> that's, that's Zen, drop the labels. Stop thinking. Stop labeling. Um, you have to understand kind of the Buddhist thought is a little bit different as far as the Eightfold Path is, than the Beatitudes. Now, 
one could make the argument that what I'm about to say is true for both of these uh, religious ideologies, but it wouldn't entirely be true. Um, but Zen Buddhism in Buddhism itself is, is more centered on the self, even though it's a dissolution of the self. And I'm trying. It's the simplest way to put it. Is is even though it's a dissolution of the self, it's still very self-centered. Whereas Catholicism, when you're meditating and you're more of a mindful Catholic or a Zen Catholic or a Catholic with a Zen mind or how however you want to phrase it, you're a meditative Catholic. That that's all that means. When when you're one of those. When you're meditative Catholic, you know, it, you're not you're not trying to empty yourself. It's not a dissolution of yourself. It is a completion of yourself. There is a uh, there's a podcast I listened to, and it's called uh, "The Bar of History" with uh, with Doctor Ed Mazza on the. Uh, broadcasting channel Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Now, I highly suggest anyone who wants a good um, history lesson in Catholic uh, history, modern, and, you know, he's got a PhD in medieval history. <laughs> so he does a lot of medieval history as well. But if you want to learn some good stuff, check out Dr. Ed's show. It's called The Bar of History. It's great. You can find it pr most anywhere, but go go to virginmostpowerfulradio.com to find that there. But he, uh, he had a quote the other day that said, man, because of our fallen nature, we have a giant, god-sized, infinite-sized hole. In our being, in our heart, or in our soul, however you want to look at it, he, I believe he said in our heart. And so man, we, we have to turn and, and, and fill God, or fill that hole, that infinite sized hole, with the only thing that can fill it. God. And we are made to be whole. We are made to be with God, to fill him, to fill that hole with God. We are made to be complete. I mean, how do we do that? Well, we sit, sit down and we focus on God. Focus on his creation, his word, scripture. We focus on his son. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to move on here before I keep before I start getting all preachy. Uh, I'm going to read here out of Zen Catholicism by Dom Alred Graham, our good buddy. Now a lot of people are probably sitting here saying like, "Hey, so this here eightfold path is it sounds like some code of morals." 
This is what Dom Graham has to say about that, right? He says, uh, and this is, he was examining the index of a recent anthology of D.T. Suzuki's writings on Zen. And he found one entry on the morality of Zen. And it's not uh, from Suzuki, but I think he says it's too, uh, from his editor. Uh, and it says, here's a passage from it. It says, there is only one way to be moral, and that is to have transcended the dualism of rules and no rules, and to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. And this calls for an act of creation in the living context. It is neither something that can be antecedently specified, nor is it something to be extemporized out of sheer spontaneity. Creative morality, that is Zen, is beyond rules and no rules, and one comes to it only when one gives up trying to cope with life from the outside. The enlightened man who has entered into union with life resolves the dualism of conformity versus antinomianism. And only he can say with Confucius, I can do whatever my heart desires without contravening principles. One must be allowed to consider this rather simple-minded with its imprecision and ecstatic tone, it exemplifies the approach of too much writing about Zen. To those looking for an escape from life's obligations, creative morality will have an obvious appeal. The more thoughtful, persuaded that duty exists and that unpleasant facts should be faced and not evaded are likely to be confused. The dualism of rules and no rules, Buddhism and Catholicism may agree, can sometimes be transcended, but the degree of enlightenment that this implies is only to be reached by the faithful observance of non-attachment. Along the lines indicated in the last chapter, Moral creativeness, with its strong flavor of the ego, is a poor substitute for the egoless response to the needs of each situation. The self-knotting through which the true self comes into being. Confucius may possibly have anticipated St. Augustine's Ama et fac quad vis. Love and do as you please. But one does not attain the insight of a Confucius or an Augustine by supposing that there is a simple recipe for doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. One follows instead the Buddha's holy truths or the pattern of Christ-like selflessness and compassionate love. So, he's using a lot of words there <laughs> but he's the quote there is basically saying that there is no real morality in zen because there's well, there's really no rules you're transcending those rules you're liberated from those rules that's what in one of our very first episodes that's what i said uh alan watts said that zen was was the liberation of the dualism of the thought and action of of labels 
you're liberating yourself of labels you know and if you liberate yourself of labels how do you know you know <laughs> what's right and wrong <laughs> there are no labels to label things right or label things wrong well you don't know you don't have any morality I mean, you have a general sense but it just becomes a feeling an instinctual spontan spontaneous feeling and it's all based on relativism what happens with relativism well look at our current country's political and economic climate there's your answer so <clears throat> we won't get too farther or deeper into that but so so that was like i said that was uh Zen catholicism dom albert graham talking about the morality of zen and how you know the free floating mentality of it is enticing and in some aspects yeah catholicism does have some kind of a uh, a mirrored sense of you know well, just roll with it but we just we quote unquote just roll with it because we have God we have Jesus Christ he is always there with us so we don't need to fear sure rolling with it means that we take a punch or two we get kicked we get you know when we go down we get kicked a few times but that doesn't mean that we just keep rolling on the ground no we pick ourselves up just because we're getting buried in paperwork at work so to speak doesn't mean you know we don't just take the paperwork one sheet at a time you know we do move move the other paperwork where you can't see it go one sheet at a time we we don't just stop and let things happen entirely we let things happen but we don't anything that's within our control we don't let become something that we wish we had controlled think about that for a second <laughs> so we'll go on we'll move on here and we're going to talk about we're going to move on in Dom Graham's book here to talk about the Eightfold Path and he says here the Eightfold Path comprises the Buddhist quote unquote code of ethics this being said, it must at once be emphasized that we are not here dealing with any systematic body of law. A comparison with the Ten Commandments would be quite out of place. Even the translation right, as applied to views, intentions, etc., could be misleading if it suggested some fixed eternal norm to which conformity was demanded. For this reason, some scholars prefer to render the Sanskrit samyak by complete rather than right, though this also presents difficulties, which need not be discussed here. Uh, those difficulties being 
the word complete, uh, ask yourself, could it really be complete if it has nothing to do with Jesus? Moving on. It will be noticed that the first two sections of the Eightfold Path concern thought, both theoretical and practical. The next four apply to external action, and the final two bring us back to the mind, embracing recollectedness and one-pointed awareness. One-pointed, not as implying effortful concentration, but rather undistractedness. The power to, quote, unwaken the mind without fixing it anywhere, end quote. A rough order of progression may be discerned in the Eightfold Path. There is a movement from an elementary stage of thought through activity to full enlightenment. What is seen at the end, however, is not something different from what one began with, only it is seen differently. The difference lies in the fact that our untutored view of things is apt to be in terms of what they mean to us, as colored by our likes and dislikes, our attractions and aversions, by the enlightened view of things are seen in their suchness, without reference to our personal tastes. So, he's just given a description from the Catholic standpoint of the Eightfold Path. He's saying here that the, uh, the first two, they concern thought. And, you know with uh, views and understandings yeah you can see how those would contain thought uh, theoretical and practical one is views one is understandings one is the views and how things how you view things in the world and the other is the understanding of things is how you, you understand the world is how you relate to things and he says here the next four apply to external action. So this here is more along the lines of what Alan Watts was saying in his book, that these middle four, they're not necessarily the code of ethics or morals. Well, they kind of are. You have right speech, or as I said earlier, you could say it's truthful speech. Um, and I'm going to say right because I don't think we should call it complete, being from the Catholic standpoint. Uh, unless you want to say the complete speech is speech involving Jesus Christ, but in any other sense, it's truthful speech, which would still imply that <laughs> it's, it's, you know, truth. God is truth, right? God is pure truth. Jesus Christ is truth. Because, well, you know, he's God in the flesh. So, he is truth. God is truth. So, truthful speech is of God. So, I guess, in a sense, that part, that specific part of the Eightfold Path, truthful speech, not complete, truthful. 
And then you have uh, right action. Or you could say conduct, right conduct, right action. You know? Uh, that kind of just speaks for itself. Act right. Then you have right livelihood, right vocation. You know? This is how you conduct yourself business-wise. You have right application and right effort for the fourth one. And that's, you know, more along the lines of your intentions, your your actual, uh, what you do and your meaning behind it. Well, I guess it, it would just be the meaning behind it, because the uh, second of the four here would be action and conduct, which would be itself, what you do. But And then he says here, the final two bring us back to the mind, embracing recollectedness and one-pointed awareness. And he's, and he's not saying one-pointed in, in a... Uh, derogatory sense. He's saying one-pointed awareness, um, not implying effortful concentration, um, but undistractedness, right? You're not thinking about 20 different things. You have a one-pointed mind. You're one thing. Usually that's nothing <laughs> in the Zen sense. So, um, so we'll move on here from Zen Catholicism by Dom Graham. And I'm going to move into a new book for you, one of the new sources. Uh, I just received tons of new sources in the mail. Uh, I got uh, a bunch of history books, a bunch of all, all sorts of stuff. So we'll, we'll have some plenty of new episodes coming in soon for you guys. But I'm going to move on to a book here, uh, Catholicism and Buddhism by Anthony E. Clark. Uh, the Contrasting Lives and Teachings of Jesus and the Buddha. I've done some preliminary reading through this. It's done in question and answer format. So uh, we'll get to a section in the book and there will be a question stated and then answers will be given based upon the Buddhist and Catholic understanding of the question. So we'll go ahead and we'll open up here to page uh, 95 of this here book. Buddhism and or Catholicism and Buddhism by Anthony Clark, uh, and we'll read here. In this question, first question we got that it states in the book here is what is the basis of Buddhist morality? So we have Buddhist moral teachings are centered on the acquisition of good karma, or positive merit, and fundamentally. These teachings focus first on one's own advancement rather than the advancement of others. The other's first approach of Christianity is in a certain sense foreign to Buddhist moral teaching, which might at first appear curious in light of Buddhism's active promotion of compassion and acts of charity. The essential nature of the doctrine of karma is self-focused, for as the Buddha told his disciples just before he died, work out your salvation 
on your own diligence. This does not mean, however, that Buddhists do not care about the welfare of others and the results of human moral actions. Buddhists do indeed care about the well-being of others, though their motivation for and method of good moral behavior is approached from a distinctive Buddhist point of view. A common Zen aphorism states that one does what one does is what happens to him. This may sound similar to Jesus' famous exhortation from the Gospel of St. Matthew. So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Matthew 7, 2. Buddhists, however, often suggest that the Christian code of behavior is centered on moral commandments, whereas Buddhist ideas of good actions center on principles. Buddhist moral principles tend to be more flexible than Christian commandments. This makes sense in light of Buddhism's very different understanding of truth. One of the key traits to Buddhist moral teaching is that there is no ultimate truth to dictate personal behavior. Moral decisions are made based more upon an inner disposition that is influenced by the teachings of the Buddha and an understanding of the laws of karma. So that is an explanation of Buddhist morality by Anthony, uh, Anthony Clark here. Um, and it, I liked how he, uh, he made the connection of the Zen aphorism, what one does is what happens to him. And then uh, kind of similar to Matthew seven twelve, he puts here, so whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. I, th I believe it sounds closer to you reap what you sow. But that's just me. <laughs> Uh, we'll move on to page 96 here, and we'll read a little bit more about the personal intentions of Buddhist moral teachings and how it's a little bit more personal in, in its intentions. Um, Buddhist moral teachings, since it is not concerned with the design and desire of a creator god, tends to emphasize personal intention rather than performance. For Buddhism does not believe that an external force, or God, will judge one's performance after she or he dies. Only karma propels one's destiny during life and after death. Buddhist scholar Harvey Aronson contrasts the Buddhist preference for intention to the Western notion of performance by comparing Buddhist moral expectations to the statement of St. Paul in Romans, where we see the passage, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Romans 7.15 for a Catholic Christian, human nature is inclined toward sinfulness as a result of the fall. So St. Paul acknowledges that humans default toward poor behavior. We must rely on God's word 
and the Holy Spirit to help us choose the correct path. According to Aronson's Buddhist worldview, however, St. Paul's remarks represent a tragic vision concerning the individual's capacity to rationally move themselves forward, calling the Christian view a form of self-doubt. Aronson suggests that Westerners are at least in part attracted to Buddhism because of its emphasis on self-help in moral decision-making. As I said, and as it kind of, you know, stated here, Buddhism kind of, there's not really any moral teachings to it, and it's all somewhat personal in its intention, and it's, it's, it's all about, it's, it's self-driven, or the disillusion of that self, but still self-driven. <laughs> you have to find that self to, dis, to dissolve it, right? So we'll move on here to this next uh, selection from this book, and it says, The Buddha's exhortation cleverly turns the human tendency for selfishness into a principle for good behavior. For, by being good to others, one earns karma, dividends, so to speak, which will pay off in the future. Another aspect of the Buddha's teaching here is the notion that those around us are not really distinctly different beings. The Buddhist idea of the ultimate oneness of all things means that to mistreat others is largely to mistreat oneself. Catholic Christianity promotes the same tenets of humanitarianism and compassion, as can be seen in the Catholic Church's position as the world's largest humanitarian institution. But God, rather than the self, is the central reason and model for Catholic morality. In more concrete terms, Buddhist morality is expressed in certain formulas that are to be followed less as rules than as principles. And other than the five Buddhist precepts, the most common formulas for moral actions are outlined in three of the Eightfold Paths. The third path, right speech, includes refrain from lying, from slander, from harsh speech, and from frivolous speech. The fourth part, right action, emphasizes refraining from taking life, from taking what was not given, and from sexual misconduct. And the fifth path, right livelihood, suggests refraining from any forms of livelihood that would compromise fulfillment of other aspects of the Eightfold Path. Taken by themselves, these moral ideals fit nicely with Catholic teaching. But the Buddhist belief in reciprocity as the reason for good actions is unlike the Christian understanding of the effects of the fall. God's role in human redemption and the reality of God's laws revealed in Scripture. And in addition, Buddhist principles of moral conduct tend to be variable according to varying senses of what constitutes good and bad karma. The Buddhist notion that moral tenets are not based upon an absolute truth contrasts starkly with the Catholic view of truth. Shortly before he was named Pope, 
Benedict the Sixteenth in April two thousand five. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger warned that humanity is moving toward a dictatorship of relativism, which does not recognize anything as definitive, and has its highest value on one's own ego and one's own desires. Without the notion that truth, which is unchangeable, dictates moral behavior, persons are left to modify moral laws based on new understandings or pluralistic standards. In other words, when what Jesus and the church teach are disregarded in favor of prevailing desires or trends, humanity or individual persons can adjust moral regulations to discard Christian values. The axiom, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's perfectly fine, can justify a multitude of behaviors forbidden in Christianity. Karma is often defined in this way. Moral laws can be changed as long as no one else is hurt. This is an incorrect view, according to Christianity. For there exists a God whose laws remain immutable. Christians trust that God knows better than humans what is right and what is wrong. Catholic morality is understood to come from God's word in scripture, which sets out to recognize the human dignity of all persons. In a word, Catholic morality is about life. For it was Jesus who said, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. In John 10.10. So, there you have it right there. Anthony Clark just laying it right out. He's saying here, though, that with the Eightfold Path, with karma, you get this problem that people can justify changing moral laws based upon the trends of the time, based upon society, based, you know... And that's what we're. That's what happens when you actually have a uh, non-structured system of morality that never changes. That's why eventually our justice system, I believe, may be doomed to fail, unless we have a sense of structured morality of, of an immutable sense, like. Clark here in the book was saying and it's just because without it you can you know you can justify relativism you can justify relativism well you justify anything because that's what relativism is (laughs) justifying anything so that's uh yeah, that, I, I felt like that was a good synopsis of why there can't be any kind of, uh, I guess you could say real holding to, real uh, grasping to the Eightfold Path is a s- superior, not superior, but as a uh, uh, a great form of ethics or morals. Um from a Catholic perspective just because yeah it, it does it, it can help you 
I'm not saying it's not bad to contemplate and to to think about some of the some of the things there on the eightfold path, you know, to think about being truthful in your speech, to think about being uh right in your actions and in your conduct and uh you know, all of that. It's good to think about and it's good to meditate on. Um but in the context of Christ and in his morality and in the morality of the church and Christianity in that context yes so that's we've kind of spent quite a bit of time talking about the eightfold path um and you know that's that's for the most part what it is it's not it's not a code of morals it's kind of a code of ethics it's a little bit more self-driven more personal driven because as uh, we went over in some in one of these books here earlier is that you know you're you're, you're racking up good karma for yourself <laughs> for a better go around the next uh, next time you're reincarnated for a better spot in life you're not necessarily worried about the other's well-being now what t- in, in contrast to Christianity where your goal usually is the well-being of the other, the salvation of their soul. So, what we're going to do now is we'll just move right along and we'll go into the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes. Because, as we were talking about earlier, you can't really stack up the Ten Commandments. It's not a fair comparison. Um... But however, the Beatitudes can kind of stack up a little bit to it. Because one can say, you know, as we went over, it's more accurate to say right instead of complete for the eight uh for the eightfold path for all of the parts of the path. And instead of saying complete, you say you can say right. Um any way you say it is gonna be is gonna have problems due to one translation in to the context of exactly what you're saying with the words you use, such as complete. What exactly does that mean? Uh, right action? Well, what is right action? Well, you can use the Beatitudes to answer, in a sense, some of the eightfold path. Right speech. Um, right speech? What do you mean, right speech? Well, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and those who are meek, and those who are peacemakers, those who are pure in heart. Those can all, you can express all of those through your speech and your action. You, you know, um, right views and right understanding. Well those who mourn and we'll get into it a little bit later but those who when he's talking about mourn he's talking about those who mourn due to the grief of sin the sin of humanity their their own sin sin of everybody and those who mourn shall be comforted so if if that's your views and that's your understanding and that's what you that's how you look at the world. You understand, well, all human sin. Sin causes suffering. And it's a thing to grieve about. Blessed are those who mourn. 
So we'll go we'll go a little bit deeper into it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read through the Beatitudes one more time. So we have, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. So, so those are the Beatitudes. And these themselves are uh, the New Testament Christians, uh, the Christian code of ethics from the New Testament. Uh, what does he mean through most of these? Um, well, to be poor in spirit, well, that's to be humble, you know? You're, uh, <laughs> those who are poor in spirit, they're not running around, they're not prideful people. Usually, high-spirited people are very prideful people, very humble people, not so much. So he's saying, blessed are those who are humble. And, and as we focus heavily on the show, humility is a big deal. That's why we have a series of meditations I'm doing now weekly on, well, we're starting with humility. Because out of humility comes all the other virtues. And that's really what the Beatitudes is laying out, is a guide to which virtues to chase down. <laughs> and if it's a guide to which virtues to chase down, it's the same thing as the Eightfold Path, although what separates them from each other is the emphasis on uh, the intention, it's personal intention versus, you know, not as personal intention. Even if you're not focused on the well-being of others, you're still focused on God with the Beatitudes. But we'll get into the real problem here in a little bit. But so, so yeah, the poor in spirit, he's, he's you know, be humble. Meekness. Meekness and it's just gentleness. It's not it's not having a heavy hand, to put it in a certain sense. <laughs> Blessed are those who are meek. Uh what was it? Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. That is a, there's a verse too. Blessed are those who are meek and blessed are those who are humble. Is there a, you know, some kind of significant reason that those are the first two of the Beatitudes that he speaks, and he tells, you know, another, another story. He says, "Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart." Is that just a coincidence? I, I, I don't think so, not at all. I think that's a very pointed uh, coincidence, if it is a coincidence. <laughs> 
and I don't think it is. Those are two very important virtues for Christians if they uh, if they pay attention to the Beatitudes and they want to enter the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. So <clears throat> next we have blessed are those who mourn. Now this is the one it's a little harder to describe this one, okay, because you know, we're not really talking about just people dying in mourning. The term mourn means to experience deep grief. In keeping with his theme of spiritual blessedness, Jesus seems to indicate that this mourning is due to grief over sin. The people who agree with God about the evil of their own hearts can attain an enviable state of blessedness due to the comfort they receive from communion with the Holy Spirit. Jesus called the Holy Spirit comforter. The Spirit comforts those who are honest and their own sin and humble enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. Those who hide their sin or try to justify it before God can never know the comfort that comes from a pure heart at as Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 8. Uh, you know, and, and, and whatever our response to mourning, the, the, the point of the beatitude is that a blessing remains on those who do mourn because the blessing is due to the love of Christ, not the goodness of man. For God's tenderness is vastly greater than we can understand or imagine. The tears that Christ, uh, the tears that Christ shed on the cross, put out the fires of hell for us, if we receive them. The the suffering that we have to endure in Christ is not vengeance, but a sharing in His own suffering. And even when chastisement comes to us for our real sins, it is ordered, always and forever, toward our final bliss and blessing. Not toward our destruction, but before, behind, and above it. All is that tenderness, a desire for our true comfort. That is the deepest, sweetest comfort there is. It is a comfort that made Paul actually rejoice in his sufferings. It is a comfort so intensely beautiful that sane men have walked gladly straight to their deaths rather than lose it. To taste it is to lose the desire of the cheap imitations the world routinely offers. Today, if you are mourning, may you know the comfort God gives in Christ and drink of it deeply. You know, so mourning it, it it does not mean grieving specifically over someone who uh, who died or, or you know something of that nature. It's about sin, M mourning and grieving over sin and suffering. He's talking about suffering as well. So if you suffer due to sin, due to your grieving over sin, you shall be comforted. 
you shall share in Christ's suffering as he is on the cross. It's a beautiful thing. So, moving on, uh, you have the next one is the uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, or for justice. So that's what we're going to explore now, is the uh, eight beatitudes. So we have uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, no, now, poor in spirit basically means humility. Those who are poor in spirit are those who are humble. Uh, and, and, and humility is a extremely important virtue. As we've talked about in a previous episode, I think it was the meditations episode that I've started doing now, that those who are humble are those who are virtuous because out of uh, any other, or out of virtue, any other, or out of humbleness, any other virtue will spring forth. It is the wellspring of all other virtues. So, and then we'll move on to the second beatitude, and we have meekness. Now, meekness is to be gentle, is gentleness or, or compassionate. A lot of people think meek would be to be humble. Well, a humble person is definitely very meek. But most of the time, meek means gentleness, compassionate. A meek person has a soft touch and a gentle word doesn't mean they're not strong or 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 that they're you know weak but they're gentle and they're compassionate uh, and moving on we have mourn blessed those who mourn now this one's a little tricky right mourning uh what exactly does he mean by mourning the term mourn it means to experience deep grief in keeping with this theme of spiritual blessedness Jesus seems to indicate that this uh, mourning is due to grief over sin the people who agree with God about the evil of their own hearts can attain an enviable state of blessedness due to the comfort they receive from communion with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, you know, whatever our response to that mourning is, or whatever our response to mourning in general, the point of the Beatitude is that a blessing remains on those who mourn because the blessing is due to the love of Christ, not the goodness of man. For God's tenderness is vastly greater than we can understand or imagine. The tears that Christ shed on the cross put out the fire of hell for us, if we receive them. The suffering that we have to endure in Christ is not vengeance, but a sharing in his own suffering. And even when chastisement comes to us for our real sins, it is ordered always and forever, toward our final bliss and blessing, not toward our destruction, but before, behind, 
and above it all is that tenderness, the desire for our true comfort that is the deepest, sweetest comfort there is. It is a comfort that made Paul actually rejoice in his sufferings. It is a comfort so intensely beautiful that sane men have walked gladly straight to their deaths rather than to lose it. So he's talking about blessed are those who mourn over their sin. <laughs> because they know that their true nature is to be with God. Not to be sinful, but to be with God. We have a fallen nature, but that's not our true nature. It's not our created nature. Intent nature by our creator. And think about it in this sense. To mourn over one's sin, to be deeply grieved over one's own sin, is to know that you're sinful. And how do you combat being sinful? <laughs> you turn to God. You, you, you turn to Jesus. Blessed are those who are mourned because you know you sinned. You're grieving over your own sin. And you, because you grieve, you're beginning to realize and recognize what you need to do to not grieve anymore. To turn back to God. Moving on. Next we have, Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness and justice. Or justice. Um, so, justice. <laughs> now here's a term that I honestly could spend more time than needed talking about. So, of all the things of a man's soul which he has within him, justice is the greatest good, and injustice the greatest evil. So that was the best quote I could have read first, right there. Justice is the greatest good. Blessed are those who seek justice, thirst for justice, who thirst for the greatest good. <laughs> so, thank you, Plato. <laughs> Moving right along, we'll just hop on over to the next beatitude. We'll go to mercy. Blessed are those who are merciful. And this one does kind of speak for itself. Blessed are those who show mercy unto others, who are merciful people, who are uh, empathetic people. Because to be merciful, you have to be empathetic. You have to look at other people, understand where they're coming from and their story. To be truly merciful, you must be empathetic. So next, moving on, we've got pure in heart. The pure in heart. Th this is one that might have people saying, well, what, 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 is, what does pure in heart mean? It's not necessarily talking about inner chastity, as you know, a lot of scholars have uh, proposed. It could be considered a general sense or a general purity of uh, conscience. 
it's more along the lines of a pure heartedness, simple, sincere, good intentions. So it's it's the works of mercy, um, zeal on the behalf of one's neighbor for their well-being. Think of those like Mother Teresa, who gave as much as they could. Think of um, St. Martin de Porres. If you don't know the story of St. Martin de Porres, it's a great story, one of my favorites. But this is a man who he would, he, he grew up in a poor uh, area of Lima, Peru, and he would go to the marketplace to buy his food family as a boy. And on his way home, he would have beggars asking for food. By the time he got home, his basket would be empty. Because even though he knew he would get in severe trouble for showing up empty-handed after just buying groceries, he could not resist giving to the poor, giving to the needy, those who were hungry. That is a pure of heart. When you can't resist, when you can't stop yourself, when you give so much that you now are in need, that is a purity of heart. You care more for others than yourself. Moving on, we have blessed are the peacemakers. That one, you know, it's, it's pretty self-forward. The peacemakers, you know. These are the ones who are good with relationships and other people. This is a very important beatitude because it goes to show you that holding grudges, starting problems with other people is, is the opposite of what you know is the opposite of what we were asked to do by Christ and the last one blessed who are blessed are those who are persecuted under my name and it's worded much differently in the Dewey Rames but the sentiment is the same blessed are those who are persecuted for my name that your reward in heaven is the greatest. That's why the Catholic Church believes that the martyrs throughout our history are the greatest of our saints, usually. Some of the greatest. It was just the feast day of uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe very recently, a great martyr who, in one of the German concentration camps, instead of letting a man starve to death, he volunteered to starve to death himself. Now that, <laughs> that's the pure of heart, merciful, hunger and thirst for justice, mourning. That's a lot of the Beatitudes and a lot of the aspects of the Eightfold Path on display just in that story oh you want him to starve to death no I'll starve to death he has a family 
that is one of the greatest honors in the Catholic Church is to become a saint by martyrdom. But that doesn't mean to go look for martyrdom. Not by any means. Because if you're trying to intend to be martyred, and become suicide. And then that's one of the worst things you can do in the Catholic faith and tradition. So, that's kind of a quick overview of the Beatitudes. Uh, I'm kind of running out of time here in the episode. I don't want these to go much too much longer uh, than what I usually upload them as. But if you want a more in-depth a um a more rock solid more uh theological uh more biblical uh explanation and reading through of the beatitudes and a much more comprehensive explanation there is a podcast that is uh named no nonsense catholic by matthew arnold uh from virgin most powerful radio network and if you look it up no nonsense catholic he has two episodes a biblical guide to uh, happiness and living well, and then uh, there's a part two. It's a two-part episode, but he goes over all eight of the Beatitudes. And it's a phenomenal episode. It's a phenomenal podcast. So I encourage you to check those out because he does a much better job of uh, explaining through the Beatitudes, uh, each one specifically, um, than I do. Cause, well, he uh, he has more time to do so. I... Uh, I want to get to mainly why the Eightfold Path and Beatitudes, yeah, they, they can stack up next to each other and you can use them in conjunction with each other, but the Eightfold Path is not something that I think Catholics should be basing all of their actions off of and all of their morality off of. Uh, and it's because, as I've mentioned now a few times in this podcast episode, is the relativist aspect. What, what do I mean by relativism? Well, I mean by justifying almost any sense of anything that you want to do. So here's, here's a perfect sense of what I mean by relativism. So you have a seven-year-old child, okay? And you decide, well... I'm going to take my child to the park. Well, it's kind of cold outside. It's, the, it's in the fall, right? So you tell your child, put on a coat. It's cold outside. Your child says, well, Mom, I, I don't think it's cold outside at all. I, I, I don't need a coat. But to you, it's cold. Well, well, it's cold. You need a coat. Mom, I'm not cold. Well, maybe to them, they really don't feel cold. Maybe somehow by the you know sheer uh the sheer uh, um fact that their body's smaller their heart is pumping a little faster and it's per you know making the blood circulate a little quicker and their body temperature is a little higher than yours is because they're more active and their body's changing at a more frequent speed so their body heats a little higher so yeah it might not be as cold outside to them and it does not feel cold outside to them. That's relativism. People's music tastes. Well, I think that jazz is, is better than than hip-hop. Oh, well, I think that rock is better than country. Oh, well, 
you're wrong. No, well, I think you're wrong. You know, relativism. There's really no right answer in, in that sense. Um, relativism and morality is so. Say, you know, I think that you know, punting babies down six flights of stairs is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. And I truly think so. Truly believe so. How are you going to stop me? We can't. Because relativism, if we use relativism to say, well, I think that that's a good thing. And if I think it's a good thing, it's a good thing. Because what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. And that's kind of what you end up getting with if you don't have a standard of morality a, if you don't have a, a core concrete standard of morality to act as a, a foundation for things like the Eightfold Path complete view, complete understanding right view, right understanding well, what is right view? what is the right understanding? What is the right speech, the right action, the right vocation, the right application? Well, as far as Buddhism is concerned, it's all based upon the individual. And that's where the relativism aspect comes in. And that's the aspect that scares me personally when dealing with the Eightfold Path. you gotta have, you got to have that foundational morality, that concrete structure. Because otherwise... You know, things just, people will try to work the system, man, and try to work their way around it. It's just how people are. It's just how we are as people, you know. Um, now, that being said, I still think that you can use both the Eightfold Path in conjunction with the Beatitudes, like I've said. Um, you know, right action. Well, how do you... How do you act right? Well, first, why don't you act humil act humbly? Be meek, act humbly. You know, thirst for justice. Be empathetic and merciful. Be honest and pure of heart. Be a peacemaker. Have hope, strength, and courage, which is taught to you the persecution that you receive. You don't have to abandon the Eightfold Path just because there is a possibility of relativism. But you can look at it with the light of Christianity and using something at, like the Beatitudes as a tool to supplement your understanding of the Eightfold Path. Because as Christians, we have answers for what is right or complete speech, even correct or even uh, complete contemplation and recollectedness. We understand what that is. Recollectedness, you could say mindfulness. Contemplation, you could say concentration. We understand what that is from a Catholic or a Christian perspective. 
is when we recollect and we contemplate God and Jesus Christ. See, we have answers to these. But the problem comes when we full-blown accept the problems of Buddhism before we get to the Eightfold Path. One must look at all this with the lens of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, well, we just fall into some problems. A lot of problems. Fall problems like relativism. Being more personal, self-driven. And you know, this is not the only spot in the Bible that Jesus necessarily talks about the Beatitudes either. This has all been in Matthew chapter 5. Later on in the Bible, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 20 through 38, Jesus again, this is the Sermon on the Plains. talking to his disciples or his twelve apostles specifically and he says to them lifting up his eyes onto his disciples he said blessed are ye poor for yours is the kingdom of God blessed are ye that hunger now for you shall be filled blessed are ye that weep now for you shall laugh blessed shall you be when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So, I, I, I wasn't going to read all the way through to 38. but So, as you can see, these aren't just arbitrary commands in some of his parables. These are the legitimate uh, code of conduct. Much like the Eightfold Path is a legitimate uh, personal code of ethics and conduct for the Buddhist. So, uh, there you have it. I think the Eightfold Path is something that Catholics can definitely benefit from uh, using. But from a Catholic standpoint, from a Christian standpoint, uh, using a lens of Christ um, and the Beatitudes mainly um, to contemplate how they uh, fit in with the Eightfold Path and how they all mesh together so <clears throat> one last time for anyone who wants to write these down and then they can use these to kind of contemplate and meditate and pray about later uh, the Eightfold Path you have right view, right understanding right speech right action 
right vocation, right application, right recollectedness, right contemplation. And view and understanding those kind of relate to the mental aspects at first and they relate to a uh, uh, a theoretical and a more physical sense an empirical and a theoretical so you have kind of you know view you know how things are something like the concrete if I'm looking at say like a guitar I'm, I, I see the wood and I see the head and I see the the tuning knobs and I see the neck and but you know the understanding I understand that all those pieces and all those things equal out to be a guitar and I understand <clears throat> what the guitar does and the sounds the guitar makes and everything and what a guitar is used for so far and, on, and so forth etc etc so and then you have the next four which relates to your actions which is right speech right action right vocation right application so speech and action those kind of speak for themselves remember it's more accurate to say truthful speech um and in right action this would be you know you i would almost say you would want to say moral action uh, these are the ones that you would want to <laughs> contemplate the uh beatitudes with the most but right action uh right vocation this you know your calling what you know what's your <laughs> you could also say livelihood you know are you uh are you complete in your vocation or your livelihood a buddhist would ask you or are you are you right in you do uh, or in your vocation uh right vocation right application uh or or effort you could say are you putting forth a right effort and then we go to recollectedness and contemplation, which you could also say mindfulness and concentration. And these are the more meditative aspects of the Eightfold Path. So you could write all those down. And then the uh, Beatitudes, which is in Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, uh, verses... I, I read 1 through 16 in the intro, uh, and the Beatitudes are there. And then, by all means, read all of chapter 5 and beyond, because the Beatitudes, they don't stop just there. They continue to go on. Um, but the Beatitudes that I needed to cover for the show uh, were only in 1 through 16. So... And those beatitudes were blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are those who are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted in my name and like I said Nadui Rames he words that a little differently he says blessed are those who are persecuted for justice's sake and then 
proceeds to tell them, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. So he kind of, there's almost nine, there's kind of, you could argue there's nine beatitudes in the Dewey Rams. But, it was really only eight. And so the the virtues that those kind of, uh, reciprocate as poor in spirit as humility meekness is a gentleness mourning we talked how that's kind of a you grieve you're grieving because of sin and it can be your sin and the sin of humanity in general and because of that sin you uh well You understand that there's tons of souls that are going to be separated from God for all eternity, including and maybe even your own. So you grieve. And uh, this is truly a holy thing. So hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. If you're searching for justice, that's, that's a very noble thing. It's a very holy thing. Merciful. Blessed are the mercy, uh, bl- merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy, and uh, who have empathy. Basically, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are honest, and who are uh, who are chaste, chaste. However you say that, I say I say chaste. I, many people say chaste. Uh, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, which is reconciliation with uh in you know relationships you're 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 a peacemaker you know blessed are those who are persecuted and need the virtues that this helps cultivate is hope strength and courage so i guess you could say hopefulness not hope <laughs> hope would be a feeling i'm hope i'm you know i, I have hope <laughs> well hopefulness could still be a feeling but Anyways, blessed are those who are persecuted, hope, strength, and courage. So, um, so those are the Beatitudes and the uh, Eightfold Path. So you can use those to meditate on both of them. And you, know, you, you really have to, uh, like I said, you really have to be careful with the relativism aspect because if you look too hard through the lens of the eightfold path you can justify almost anything that you want to do and 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 what you know one last time i'll give you a little story i guess not story but a little question about relativism that's meant to make you think right so so say you have a friend and your friend gives you an axe because you want to chop some wood for a fire. So you put the axe in your shed and you lock your shed. Well, (laughs) after some time talking to a friend of yours, he enlightens you to the fact that he has paranoid schizophrenic uh, tendencies that he's just been diagnosed with and bipolar. Uh, 
and that he's on tons of meds and is very unstable or or whatever, what have you. Uh, one day, say, you get a call from him saying, Hey, uh, do you have that axe? I'd I'd really like to have the axe back. And you have no reason to doubt why he'd want his axe back. Maybe he has some wood to chop, right? There's no reason. Um, Side note, by the way, this is also a good uh, question about justice, too. You'll see what I mean. But, you know, he he might have some wood to chop. You have no reason to question him. So you say, oh, yeah, sure. You can come on by later tonight and, and, and grab the axe. You know, it's in my shed. I'll just, you know, when you get here, we'll walk back there and I'll unlock it for you. And he says, all right. And then as you guys talk, he proceeds to open his heart about his ex-girlfriend and how he blames all his problems on her and that after he visits you he's going to her house to get some more of his things. Some of the other things that he says and the way that he says them makes you think that now his ex-girlfriend is now in harm. Is now in danger of being put in harm. Is in danger of being seriously harmed. Well, you have his axe. <laughs> By modern standards of justice, so this is what I mean by the justice aspect. By modern standards of justice, by many standards of justice, many people believe justice is that one should get what he is owed. Well, that is that man's axe. Give it to him. See, this man... If he is true in his mind also that this woman actually is the cause of all of his problems, then is he wrong? Could you argue that he's not wrong? What if because of the way his mind is, because of his, you know, the way his mental condition is. And I'm not trying to say anything bad about people that have these conditions. I'm just saying sometimes certain conditions can compound on top of other conditions and then the stressful environment of one's life can compound on top of all of these conditions together and create a terrible outcome. And it's not, you know, not any reason to blame anybody. 
I don't mean any disrespect for anyone who has any of these conditions. I, I could only imagine dealing with them. But would you give this man his axe? Clearly, he, you, you pick up on the fact he intends to harm his axe. Well, now you're not giving him his axe. If you're not giving him his axe, you're not, not being very justice. Not partaking in justice very well, are you? And so forth and so on. And so the argument goes back and forth. As you can just keep going and going and going with that. See, relativism is is a tool that, well, I don't care what you say. Justice is, to me, justice to me is people getting what they're owed. I don't care if, uh, <clears throat> what the consequences of, those people, whatever they do with their property is their business, not mine. They just deserve what they're owed, and that's what they should get. Well, you may very well have murder on your hands. Heaven forbid, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope that that, that would never happen. But you never know. It's a strange world, and stranger things have happened. How do you convince someone whose view of the world has been crossed to put it in a polite manner that what they're doing is wrong when they can justify it by their own logic? And if you don't have a concrete standard of morality backing up what's right or wrong well you get it's cold for me but it's hot for you I don't care that it's 78 degrees that's just a number it's still cold for me and hot for you that's relativism and that's that's the danger in the Eightfold Path. You have to have the concrete foundation of a structured morality from a higher divine being, so to speak, basically. Otherwise, you can justify almost anything that you want. Alright, so that was the episode for the Eightfold Path and the Beatitudes as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. So, just remember um, that the Eightfold Path, it, it, it can lead to relativism. Relativism is a no-no because it goes against the structured morality that God laid down, stuff like the natural law, the Ten Commandments, um, and things like the Beatitudes that Jesus gave us. Uh, apologize if the episode got a little hard to follow at times. 
it uh, it was one of them there rough ones that was a little struggle to get out. That's why I gave you all a different source for the Beatitudes to someone who can explain them a lot better than I can. Uh, I think I did an okay job of doing it because some of them are self-explanatory. But if you really wanted to get the real deep, the theological and the biblical and the philosophical aspects of the Beatitudes, really go check out that No-Nonsense Catholic with Matthew Arnold. And it's the uh, a guide to living well with happiness or something along those lines part one and two and it's all about the beatitudes it's great it's great but also you can find me um on uh facebook if you want you can type in catholic with the zen minds on the search bar or you can look up facebook.com forward slash j martin catholic zen mind i believe is what it is you can also find me on Twitter at K of C, K O F C underscore Crusader. Uh, I'm in the process of making a Twitter for the show, so pretty soon I won't be giving out my actual personal Twitter anymore. So be weary going to my Twitter page, by the way. <laughs> I'm a different person on Twitter than I might be on my show. Keep that in mind. But I'm still. doesn't mean I don't treat people the same that, you know, you probably think I do. Anyways. Also, you can e email me if you got any questions or you want to, you know, ask me anything or whatever. Um, email is catholiczenmind at yahoo.com So. We got some other good episodes coming up for you soon here everybody i'm going to be doing my first history episode coming up soon and i plan on keeping those short uh got tons of the uh, meditations episodes coming up for you got tons of new sources coming in for you uh all sorts of goodies so subscribe share help build the word and remember, we're not trying to replace anything out of Catholicism. We're trying to uncover the stuff that's been hidden by, uh, well, glossing over misunderstandings and, and all sorts of stuff. But, anyways, before I keep you all too long, send hard or don't. Pray harder. God bless everybody. Stay humble.